well. So we've been doing a, a series on the um, neglected women of the Old Testament. And in truth, um, when I started this series, I didn't really know where it was going to go. So we started with Leah. I was sort of in interested in Leah because um, she is the woman that no one wanted. You remember while the, her future husband, uh, Jacob, wants his, her sister, he doesn't want her. And then uh, I got kind of, I was going to do Hagar, but we did Hagar last year, at the beginning of last year. Hagar was the, the woman that God came looking for and found. And then um, I thought about um, Rachel and Leah. I just sort of got caught into that because there's that rivalry and they don't look great in that. And then we come to this text, Tamar. But the thing about this text is in some ways it's more about Judah than Tamar. So if you're looking for the series of the neglected women of the Old Testament, I can promise you next week is the sort of sermon that I really wanted to preach because it's a, one of those sermons where the... Um, the men are all silly and the women are all wise. And that's kind of what I wanted uh, this series to be about. So when I came to this text, I picked Tamar um, because she comes up in the New Testament. And you see that she's actually a hero in God's story, but certainly her actions aren't really straightforward. But as I started to study this text, the thing that jumped out actually was the idea of sight that God sees. You see it again and again. God sees. He sees evil that people do. And he acts in judgment. And even that place, Enaim, it actually means two eyes or two fountains. So God sees what takes place there. And God sees, so what hope do we have? I have this idea that we have this idea of comparative righteousness. And what I mean by that is that we... We compare ourselves to other people and we think we'll be okay because other people are at least as bad as us and sometimes worse if we can find the right people to compare ourselves. And sometimes when we do something that we know is wrong, someone will unhelpfully say to us, but sure, you're only human. As if God was just using flawed human standards as our level of righteousness. But God's level of righteousness is his son, Jesus. And all of us fall short. A man goes to a priest, he goes to confession for the first time in a long time, and the priest hears his confession and says to him, but sure, you're grand, I've heard a lot worse than that. But that's not what God's looking for. He's looking for a perfect righteousness, and as this text tells us, God sees. So what hope do we have? Well, we'll come to that at the end of the passage when we have looked through our three points. And the first point is, in verse 1 to 11, is that Judah fails. This is not the first time we've met Judah. We've met Judah when we looked at Leah. And you remember, she spent all her time hoping that her husband would love her. So she had these sons, and she thought that, well, now he'll love me. And then she has Judah, and she says, this time I'll praise the Lord. She's free from trying to please everybody else. She's just going to look at her gracious and kind God. But Judah 
doesn't seem to share the faith of his mother. And, and then Judah comes up again before this passage when you remember the brothers are plotting against Joseph. And Judah says, don't kill him, we'll sell him. And I don't know what his motive in that was, whether it was just for profit, we'll make something out of this. But he doesn't at this stage come across as a particularly great fellow. And now in verse 1, our passage begins, and we read that Judah left his brothers and his fathers and went down to Canaan. Now, one of the things we're going to see in this passage is that Judah is being compared to Joseph. So the Joseph story, chapter 37 and 39 onwards, and right in the middle we have Judah's story with Tamar. And he's being compared to Joseph. And at this stage, what we can say is this. Joseph left his father and his brother, and, and then the access in some ways to his father's God, not that... God wasn't going to go with him, but he was forced away from the family and the community that God had set his heart on. But Judah chooses to leave. He's, he's falling away. I, I don't know if there's any uh, emphasis here on the, he goes down to the Canaanites, but that's what's happening. He's leaving his brother, he's leaving his father, he's leaving their God, and he's going down to be among a people who have no interest in the God of Jake, Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. He's about 16 or 17 years old at this time, and like 16 or 17 years old people, he tends to fall in with the wrong company because he's now thoroughly embedding himself in Canaanite culture. And Abram and Isaac had both told their sons not to marry Canaanite women, because they would pull their heart away from God. But he does just that. He marries a woman whose name we're not given. And it literally says, he saw, and it was in that reading, he saw a Canaanite woman, and he took her for himself. It does seem to be a bit of an echo of Eve in Eden, doesn't it? She saw, he took. He's moving away from God. And this unnamed woman gives three sons, Ur, Onan, and I like to call him Sheila. Uh, now, I, I, I think it's Sheila. You uh, sort of saved him, because you know these times where there's a name that's like a... a, a a woman's name in our culture, but we maybe, you know, it's a, it's a man in this text. So I think he's called Sheila. What did you call him? Shalah. Okay, well, well, we'll agree. But you know the Johnny Cash song, A, a Boy Named Sue? Um, you know, here's uh, Sheila, or Shalah, to spare his blushes. Um, but she has three sons, and then uh, verse seven, the eldest son, who's now married to Tamar, does evil in the Lord's sight, God's watching, evil in the Lord's sight, and God takes away his life. We're not told what exactly he did. And in that culture, 
it was important to have a line, a lineage, and, and, uh, and a son to take over your name. And so what was supposed to happen was that the next son would marry Tamar and give her sons. And uh, therefore, the name of Ur, the eldest, because the son would be considered his, would continue. But Onan, the next son, what he realizes is that this son will get the rights of the firstborn. It's not in my interest. And therefore, well, you, you read that embarrassing part of that passage. I, I kind of find it um, helpful to realize that the Bible's really real. Like the Bible's not naive. The, the Bible knows what people are like. You know, the Bible in some ways doesn't blush at human evil. It knows better than we do, and God knows better what we do than what people are like. I kind of like, remember your parents, you know, you, you kind of were embarrassed. Would they, would they ever be able to imagine what goes on, you know, amongst me and my friends? Well, well my mom was a little bit naive. Um, she was very innocent, but um, in a comparative sense. Um, but my mom, you know, you know, she wouldn't have known, but God's different. He knows everything. He knows everything. Nothing shocks him. And he sees. And what Tamar then does is she's now in a situation where Onan and now he's killed. Because, you see, what he wanted is he's quite happy to have sex with her. But what he does is he doesn't want to have a child. And, and you see how he gets around that. And now there's only one son left. Hila or Shela, whatever we're going to call him. And he's only a young boy. He's too young to fulfill his duties. So what Judah says is, you hang around, Tamar, and, and when he's old enough, you can take him as a husband, and then Ur will have his son. But we read that he actually has no intention of doing that. Why? Because he thinks that Tamar is the reason the boys are dying. I think what's going on in his head is that he's thinking, you know what, I may not be walking very close to God, but at least I'm not like one of those Canaanite women. At least I'm better than them. It must be her fault. It couldn't be my fault or my son's fault. It must be her fault. She's the reason they're dying. And he looks down his nose at her. And then we move into the second scene. And we see that, you know, rebellion against God really ruins us. She sees that Tela has grown up and Judah has not fulfilled his promise to her. And she's in a desperate situation because in that patriarchal society, a woman without a son had no one to look after her. And so she comes up with a plot. At this stage, Judah is now a widower, and she knows that Judah is the sort of man who will pay for sex. And so what she does is she goes down to the place called Enam, which means two eyes or two fountains. God is watching. And what she does is she dresses up as a prostitute. It's sheep shearing time, and there's lots of revelry. And what happens is, is that Judah thinks that she is a prostitute, and he sleeps with her. And God sees. And remember again, 
Remember again that this is chapter 38 of Genesis. Chapter 37, we're introduced to Joseph. What happens in chapter 39? In chapter 39, Joseph is tempted by Potiphar's wife. A woman comes on to him and puts him under all sorts of pressure to have sex with him and to commit adultery. And Joseph says, how could I do this against my God? He's an example of someone who's holding on to God for sexual purity. But Judah is the example of someone, a complete comparison. He doesn't need to be brought into a place of temptation. He's looking to be tempted. And he's not coming across favorably. Now think about this whole issue of comparative righteousness. Judah looks down at Tamar. Oh, she's the reason my sons are dying. And the Bible shows us that he's nothing like Joseph. He's not even beginning to willing, will against temptation. And God brings him to his senses. Uh, when I look at the last or the second last part of this passage, I think a little bit about David being confronted by Nathan. You know, you're the man. You know, David who had committed adultery. And Nathan tells him that parable, and you're the man. He's brought to his senses, I think, a little bit of the, the parable of the prodigal son. He ends up in such a position that he has no choice but to go home, to come to his senses. And this is how he comes to his senses. Three months pass, and Tamar is pregnant. And the word comes back that she's pregnant because she was acting as a prostitute, and he shows no mercy. He says, let her be burned to the death. What a hypocrite. What a hypocrite. And in fact, there's a text, I, I, you can look it up, Hosea 4.14, where God points to the male hypocrisy of men who were, were condemning women for their sexual behavior. And he says, but I'm not going to condemn them because look at what you do. And that's what happens here. Tamar is pregnant and he wants to burn her. And I think of another passage where there's another Joseph in Matthew's gospel, Joseph who is engaged to Mary. And what about Joseph engaged to Mary? He wants mercy. He wants justice to be done, but he's also instinctively merciful. And so he, the Joseph in Matthew 1, must assume, because he doesn't know about the angel and that she was actually a virgin giving birth, he must have assumed that she had cheated, and it says he planned to divorce her quietly to save her disgrace. How different he is to Judah, who wants to burn her. Or what about Jesus in John's Gospel, chapter 8, and a woman caught in the very act of adultery? And again, there's male hypocrisy here because only the woman is brought to the Jesus in the temple. And of course, it takes two to commit an act of adultery. And Jesus says to her, and he's the only one who can condemn her because he's the only one who's innocent. He says, I don't condemn you. And, and don't forget also, though, he says, go and leave your life of sin. Because the Bible does take sexual sin very seriously. 
saw that what Judah uh, uh, or Tamar did was not wrong. Of course it was wrong. But look at Judah's words in verse 26. She is more righteous than I. She's more righteous than I. He's being brought to his senses. No longer is he comparing himself to this Canaanite woman who he blames for the death of his sons. No longer is he saying, well, I'm just a healthy man with healthy instincts and I just need this. He's not justifying anything that he's done. He says, I've sinned, and you know what? She is more righteous than I. Why is she more righteous? Well, he didn't care about the promise that was given for many descendants. He didn't care that Ur should be allowed to have a descendant himself. He didn't care about these things. And Tamar, even though what she did was wrong, it may be that she was motivated that Ur should have a, a son. And maybe she knew something of the promise that there would be many descendants through that family. Stars of the sky, sand of the seashore. And while she's not innocent in this story, you can just tell she's certainly not as bad as Judah. And what I love about this passage as we come to the end is that this isn't the last time we hear about Judah or Tamar. In chapter 44, you might remember what had happened. Joseph has been taken to Egypt. And there's this whole thing about Benjamin, Joseph's younger brother. And, and Benjamin looks in danger. They're going to have to go back to the father without Benjamin, just the way things have been set up. And then Judah steps in, in chapter 44, the end of the chapter, and he says, no, my father would be brokenhearted if anything happened to this guy, Benjamin. Uh, you, you know, in some ways, it's, you know, he should be angry with his father because certainly his father's still his favorite. But my father would be brokenhearted to take me. Let me be his substitute. Because my father would be brokenhearted. And can you see he's changed? And so now, in some ways, in that passage, he's acting like Jesus, who's our substitute. You know, the one who takes the punishment instead of us. And so one of the things that's happened here is that God has come to Judah and said, I see, I see your sin. I see the depths of your heart. What are you going to do about it? And away go the excuses Away go the comparisons. He just puts up his hand and says, I need your forgiveness. And he's changed. And then the end of the story, isn't the end of the story quite interesting? The birth of these two sons, the twins. It reminds us, does it not, a little bit of Isaac and Jacob and the wrestling that was going on in this family and the unusual nature of the birth and then comes Perez. And what we're seeing is that God is using this line that goes from Abram to Isaac to Jacob to Judah that will go down to King David, that will go down to Jesus to send his rescuer. And then we go to the book of Matthew, and you remember when Edwin spoke on Matthew and did such a great job. And in Matthew, I think it's chapter 1, verse 3, Tamar is mentioned. And so what we see, as we see in all these stories, is that in some ways the unifying 
theme of these stories is actually that God uses messed up people to achieve his purposes. And he uses messed up people like you and me and he brings us into his story. You know, we, we've made all sorts of made mistakes. And he brings us into his story. And that's where I want to finish. I want to finish on this idea that God sees. You see, if I hadn't done Hagar before, and we did Hagar a year ago, I would have done her again. And I would have said, Hagar's the woman that God sees. And he comes chasing for her, even though she's running away. And now you get this passage, which is all about God seeing. He saw the evil that those boys had done, and he acted in judgment. At a place called Enam, which means two eyes, he saw the evil that Jude uh, had done. But in his amazing kindness, Judah comes to forgiveness and experiences change. I wonder for ourselves if change is something we're experiencing. Is the grace of God, the mercy of God, softening us? Yeah, I was thinking about this in terms of becoming a Christian. Becoming a Christian isn't just, you know, you pray a prayer, you're in the club, carry on. Becoming a Christian is that you hand over your life to God. You say, change me. And the evidence of being born again is not being able to say the hour or place that you prayed a prayer. The evidence of being born again is that God is making you different. And it does not mean that you're perfect because none of us are perfect. In fact, 1 John tells us that we're lying if we say we don't sin. But we're being changed by the grace of God. Like Judah was changed. And sometimes we despair because we don't see the change within us. But God willing, we are changing and growing, particularly in love and particularly in love for his people. But just to finish, how can God, who sees what Judah does, who's a holy God because when he sees what other evil people did, he acted in just judgment, how can he see our hearts, which the Bible tells us are worse than we even see ourselves, and not condemn us? Because when he sees people who are in Christ, he sees Christ's righteousness. He sees you as someone trusting in Jesus and he sees not your guilt, but Christ's righteousness. He saw Jesus on the cross, and he saw your guilt and took it away. He now sees you, and he sees you, even with all your imperfections and sins, and he sees you as a people because of that, you can have security and no love. And if you want to change, surely we all do. There's nothing that changes us more than seeing how much God loves us. Amen. Shall we pray?
Lord God, you see. You see our hypocrisy. You see our bitterness. Lord God, you hear. You hear our complaints. You hear our gossip. You hear words that are exaggerating and lying. And you forgive. You see what our eyes see and you see that we look at things that we should not look at. And you want to change us. Because you did not save us to be static. You saved us to grow. And to grow to become like the beautiful person of Jesus. So help us resist temptation as we lean on you. And be confident in you because we know that you see Jesus in us.